All right, everybody, we are in Daniel chapter 9, and Lord willing, we're going to finish the book today. We have about 18 or 19 verses to go, um, so we'll just dive right in. Daniel 9, we started it last week. Uh, it is chronologically, as we said then, it's the last chapter that Daniel wrote. Um, it Basically, it encompasses a the bulk of it, a uh, almost a psalm, but certainly a prayer of repentance and contrition on Daniel's behalf, on behalf of the whole nation. Um, the motivation behind it, what spurred the whole thing, um, was the, uh, the prophet reading from the words of Jeremiah and reading about how God had promised that they would go into exile, but they would only be there for 70 years and then they would get out of exile. And that was decades ago. They are nearing the end of what should be their period in exile based on what God had promised. But Daniel understanding either intuitively by study or by inspiration, understanding how God works in these sort of things, knows that God can promise 70 years, but that is always God's promises are dependent on our faithfulness and willingness to receive those promises. So God says 70 years and you're out. Daniel's mind, he's looking around at the nation who is in captivity in Babylon in Persian control. And he says, we have not offered any kind of prayer of repentance. We have not shown any kind of sorrow. We have not asked God to forgive us. We have not made anything um, by our actions, our deeds, our words to let God see us as a people worth getting out of exile. So Daniel, I think, is thinking, we're not going to get out of exile unless we offer that. And so he uses this final um, uh, text that he writes to word this very beautiful, poetic, very psalm-like prayer of, um, of apology to God for all the sins that put them in captivity in the first place. Chief among them really is idolatry, but there's so much that goes into that. Idolatry is almost a symptom of the bigger problem. They had fallen out of love with God. And you're going to love something, uh, or someone, or someones, and they stopped loving God, and they started just turning to loving the creation more than the creator. So they're in captivity, and we're in the middle of this prayer, and if you go back to verse 8, which is where we left off last week, in verse 8, Daniel says, O Lord, to us, to the people who have sinned, who are saying we're sorry, to us belongs confusion of face. That's the King James Version. To our kings and our princes and our fathers because we've sinned against you. So he's saying, when you look at us, we want you to see shame. That's the meaning of the word. We want you to see shame on our faces, shame for what we've done. But when we look at you, what do we see? Verse 9, to the Lord our God, your face belongs a face of mercy and forgiveness. You see how those two ideas, the word face isn't in verse 9, but it's it's like the opposite. It's just the, uh, the same idea, just expressed in a different way. In verse 8, when you see us, to us belongs shameful faces, but to you belongs mercies and forgivenesses. The Not just mercy and forgiveness, but it's pluralized. To you belongs all the mercies we could ever have and all the forgivenesses we could ever ask for they have to come from you. We cannot forgive ourselves in that sense. I mean, you must forgive yourself when you sin, when you come to God. But in the sense of actual getting a, a atonement for your sins, you can't accomplish that. You need God to do that. So it is only up to you, God. We are just completely giving ourselves over to you. It's up to you or we're not going to get it at all. Verse 9 again. To our Lord God belongs mercies and forgivenesses. Though we have rebelled against him. We don't deserve it. If we deserved it, it it wouldn't be called grace. Uh, but it's, we, don't, we don't deserve it. We've rebelled, and so we're asking for what we don't deserve, which is mercy and forgiveness. 
Um, the word mercy, I don't know how your Bible translates it. Does anybody's Bible call this word compassion? Does anybody have the word compassion in this verse? Verse 9. Uh, verse 9. Mercy. You have mercy? Everyone just says mercy? Yeah. The word means compassion. Um, in other words, there, there is the idea of mercy. When we think of mercy, we tend to think of the end result. Like, this person needs something, so I will give them mercy, and now they've gotten mercy. But the word actually refers to the beginning of the process. It refers to that feeling you get, like right about there in your gut, when you see someone who is hurting or you see someone who is in need and you're compelled to help them. You're compelled to do something for them. As a father in heaven, God is looking down at his children and he is seeing all the hardship that they've gone through in Babylon. Which, mind you, he put them in as punishment. But he's not unfeeling. He's not a machine. He has heart. He has emotions. And he put them there to teach them the lesson and to punish them as he was right to do. And now there he sees them suffering. And he is, through Daniel's prayer now, hearing them beg, please let this be over. And it's stirring within God this desire to do something, which leads him into the next, the next word in that verse, forgiveness. So God, twinge your heart, pluck your heartstrings, twist your stomach into knots and desire to stoop down to we ungrateful people. And give us what we don't deserve, which is forgiveness. We rebelled against you, verse 10. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. We have not walked in his laws, we have, um, which he set before us, pardon me, uh, by his servants, the prophets. So this is just what you're supposed to do when you're making a prayer of forgiveness or asking for forgiveness. Or if you're just a child who has disobeyed his parents. Or if you're just a person who has wronged another person. Whenever you need to express forgiveness or ask for forgiveness, express sorrow, what you don't say is, well, I'm sorry it happened, but, because everything that follows the but is what you really believe, and everything that preceded the but is just what you feel like you were obligated to say. And God doesn't operate on you working through uh, just a bland sense of obligation. He wants he wants serious sincerity. So if you say to God, or if you say to someone you've wronged, well, I'm sorry it happened, but it only happened because, it's certainly not, it's only happened because you, and we start doing that, we try to split the blame 50-50. Listen, if you're at fault, you're at fault. If you're not, you're not. But if you're at fault, then what you have to do to apologize divinely, what you have to do to apologize scripturally, is to say to the person, I'm sorry this happened. I'm sorry I did it. I deserve the punishment if it's applicable. And please forgive me. And that's it. It doesn't involve you at all getting on your high horse. Your horse is dead. You fell off it because you did wrong. They, they have the high ground because they're the ones being wronged. God has the ultimate high ground. We have wronged him. We have not obeyed him. We have not walked in his laws. Though he provided for us every opportunity to do that, his servants, the prophets, came and came and came again and told us not only what he expects of us, but that we weren't doing it, that we would be punished if we didn't turn around, and that he's begging us to be right with him again. That was the message of the prophets over and over and over. And in response, the people murdered them, murdered them, murdered them, and did not listen to them. Um, but there's something else I want you to note about this, though. Look at, look at what he, the way he phrases it. I'm going to read verse 10 again. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws. In other words, Daniel equates listening to and obeying the voice of God with knowing and obeying the word of God. God provided for us his word, which the prophets, but we're all warm now. That heat is going. I think Sonia cranked that up to 95. We're all warm now. So God has provided us his voice. He's spoken to us and told us what he wants. Now he's done that either orally, as you can find Bible record of that, 
Or he simply said to the prophets, go tell them I said this, and off they went. And then later it was written down. There's no difference in like Daniel or Isaiah or whomever appearing right here in, in my place right now. If, if I sat down and Daniel stood up here and Daniel told you, here's what God says. I'm the prophet of God. I'll tell you what God says. There's no difference in that and just reading it for yourself. It's still the words of Daniel inspired of God, whether spoken or written. So the voice of God goes to Daniel and it comes out through Daniel to us, either through the word or back then they heard it orally. I say all that to say this. If anybody ever says to you, or certainly if you've ever said, I don't need to obey this verse, or I don't need to obey the Bible here or that, because God has told me, if what you think God has told you is something that contradicts what his word has said, somebody may be talking to you. I don't, I'm not in your head, but I promise you it wasn't God. Somebody may be whispering to you, and you can find Bible record of that too, when the devil whispered to people and talked to people, but it wasn't God. God's not going to tell you to do something contrary to his word. And Daniel makes it clear that following his word and listening to his voice are the same thing. There is no disconnect. There is no, well, God told me this, so I don't have to do what the Bible says. No, God told you what he said in the Bible. That's the same idea. Now, verse 11. Indeed, or furthermore, yea, all Israel has transgressed your law through departing from it, that we might not obey your voice. Again, synonymous ideas. Therefore, the curse is poured out upon us, and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him, him being God. I want you to notice a couple of things here. First of all, there's no distinction made between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom sinned even more egregiously than the south. The northern kingdom was wiped out by Assyria. The southern kingdom taken into captivity by uh, Babylon. There were plenty in the north who ended up intermingling and coming back into the, the Judean fold. Uh, so when they were all back together, there were people from all the other tribes there too. It's not like they were completely exterminated. There were none left. Not like that. But the point is, Israel was completely separated from the south, and the north was separated from the south, and completely obliterated, and the south all but obliterated. But in the eyes of Daniel, as he's offering this prayer, he puts them all back together. He goes back to the time when they weren't split up, when they were just God's people. And all of them are God's people, where they completely got away from or mostly got away from them. He just says, Israel, we've all, all Israel has transgressed your law, departed from your law, didn't obey your voice. And so we all have deserved what's come to us, which is called here, the curse poured out on us. We all deserve the fulfillment of the oath spoken by Moses. Does anybody have an idea what that's talking about? Moses spoke in Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy, the last book of the Pentateuch, the last writing of Moses, is basically just a refresher course on the law of Moses, which was given in Exodus and Leviticus. And it was given to that generation that was about to go into the promised land. Remember, the first generation deprived the promised land because they were unfaithful to God. So this next generation is going to go in. Moses is not going to go in with them because he had his own sin. So Moses is giving these series of final speeches in Deuteronomy to retell the law. That's Deuteronomy. It's what the word means. The second law, the retelling of the law. And in the midst of all that, Moses starts saying things like, now you're going to go into this land, and if you don't uphold the promise that you made to God, which that you would be his people and he would be your God, then you're going to be punished. You're going into the land, but he will kick you out of the land if you don't obey. And there's a chapter, I wrote it down, chapter 28 of Deuteronomy. We don't have time to cover it. It is verses 15 through 68, over 50 verses 
where Moses describes in great specific detail what kind of curses that they would have to suffer if they stopped following God. It's just curse after curse. I mean, like, your goats would have pestilence, your cows would keel over, you would have all these things. Like, Pharaoh had ten. Moses gives the people 57 verses worth of offenses that they will, 57 verses worth of curses. Which I'm going to, that's, that's what, hang on. That rhymes, so I'm going to use the words of curses. Yeah, that rhymes. If it rhymes, you can make a demo out of it. So he gave them 57 verses worth of curses to emphasize just how much God is thinking about what he's going to do to them if they don't follow him, which tells me he takes it seriously if you don't follow him. It's not just something he thinks, oh, well, I wish you hadn't done that. I guess I'll, I'll punish you. No, he's got it figured out. So they were aware. He speaks to the oath, the promise that God made that they would be punished if they didn't follow we think of God's faithfulness. Now think about God's faithfulness from the other side of that coin. If I need something from God, and it's something I need to have, and God promised to provide it, I can take it to the bank. God will provide it. God is a promise keeper, a promise keeper, a faithful doer. But if I am disobedient to God, that same God has promised a spanking if I don't obey. And he is a faithful promise keeper. And now here they're seeing that. That's verse 12. That's what it says. He has confirmed his words. What does your Bible say? Beginning of verse 12. So he's confirmed his words, right? Yeah. He said he would do it. Now here we are. He told us when we first went in generations ago that if we didn't follow him, he'd kick us out. He, Moses specifically said pagan nations would come in and take you away. And now here they are. A pagan nation has come in and taken them away. He's confirmed his word which he spoke against us and against our judges that judged us by bringing, us, bringing upon us a great... My Bible says evil. Calamity. Calamity here says? That's fine. Evil is a perfectly fine translation, though. I'll come back to that. For under the whole heaven has not been what has been done upon Jerusalem. That's a little bit of poetic hyperbole. Daniel is saying, you promised this, we're living through it, and we've never seen anything like the spanking that you gave us or that you gave Jerusalem when the city was destroyed by Babylon. But your Bible says calamity. Mine says a great evil. The word's going to come up again. Look at verse 13. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this, does yours say calamity again? Yes. All right. It's come upon us, yet we made not our prayer before the Lord our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. If you asked Judah while they're in captivity, was it a good thing? Is it? No, I'll say it wasn't. Was it a good thing when Babylon came in and destroyed the temple? and carried the, the holy emblems away and you know singing and mocking as they carried the Ark of the Covenant out of the temple and burned everything down behind them and scorched earth everything. Was that a good day? Do you think anyone would say that was a good day? No, they would say it was a bad day. Was it a good thing that happened? No, they would say it was an evil thing that happened. And the meaning of the word, how they would use the word is it was this against us thing. The word evil just means against. So the evil one is the devil. He's the adversary, the accuser, the one who's against you. So he's evil. But what Daniel is saying here, and it's a perfectly appropriate way to phrase it, is God did evil to Judah from Judah's perspective. From God's perspective, God gave him a spanking. But it hurt the butt of, of Judah, as they're supposed to when you get a spanking. If it's light, it doesn't work. You have to make it sting a little. And then they remember and they feel it. And they don't. if you ask them, they won't say it is good that I got spanked just now. In like 30 years, they might say that. 
And here we are, 70 years almost later, and now Daniel is saying it. But at the time, when you get the spanking, it just hurts. And you just think, ow, that was bad, I don't like that. You're supposed to think that. Because the next thought out of your mouth or your mind should be, I don't want that to happen again. And then you connect that dot to the commandment of your parent, which is, if you do that again, I'm going to spank you again. And suddenly you'll be disinclined to do that again, whatever it is. Again, verse 13. As it was written in the law of Moses, all this calamity, fine. But that word just makes it sound like a random happenstance bad thing. You know, it just a, a flash flood. You know, this is a doing of God. An act of hurt by God to his people has come upon us. And in response to that, so far, we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God. We have not turned from our iniquities. And we have not understood your truth. And that's what this prayer is meant to accomplish. That's, by the way, that's why, to go back to the previous text that we studied, the uh, 10, 11, and 12 chapters, we had all that 3.5 stuff, 3.5, how it's phrased in different ways, and how it means this um, incomplete period of time from our perspective. How long will we have to endure all this hardship that you're talking about, God? And God says, well, until 3.5 is fulfilled. Well, what is that? Until I say so. I'm not going to tell you how long. Well, why isn't God going to tell me how long? Because if the child in the corner who's in time out knew how long he had to stand there until the idea of the parent is, stand there until you feel bad and you won't do the thing anymore. Okay, but if you tell the child that and then say, or until five minutes is up, which one do you think they're going to focus on more? Feeling bad or counting down five minutes, 459, 458, 457 in their head? They're going to count down to five minutes is up and they're not going to have learned the lesson. So you put them in the corner and you say, you'll get out when you feel sorry for what you've done and when you say you're sorry and I can see it in your heart. And then you get out of the corner. What is that? Three and a half. It's an incomplete period of time. It just keeps going until I say it stops. I know when it's over. It's over when I see the contrition. But you don't know when it's over because you haven't shown the contrition yet. So that's what Daniel is saying here. All this calamity has come upon us and we're still in calamity. We're still in hardship. We're still in this difficult time. Why? Because we haven't said we were sorry. So, of course, God is not going to give us the exact time frame. You'll, you'll be out when I say, here's the time. It'll be just, you'll be out when you're ready. And they're not ready yet. Hopefully now they're getting ready. Verse 14. Therefore has the Lord watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works which he does. For we obey not his voice. Once again, when you're making your apologies, I did this, I deserve this. I'm sorry, please forgive me. That's what Daniel's doing here. God, again, best, beginning of the verse, the Lord has been watchful. That's a phrase actually coming from Jeremiah. I wonder if he didn't lift that from Jeremiah because he was just reading the prophet. The Lord is watchful upon the evil that the people are doing. He is seeing the evil that we're doing. Now, it's the same word used in the previous text. Does your Bible say evil or calamity in verse 14? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes? Okay. But in this case, the calamity is Judah's doing. It's Judah's sin. So it's not just a calamity. It is evil. It is bad things. So God has been watchful of the evil that Judah has been doing. And what has God done? He's taken it and he's force-fed it to us. He's given it to us the hard way. We want to do evil our own way. We want to worship other gods. So God says, you want to worship other gods? Okay, I'm going to kick you out, put you in a land where there's all kinds of other gods you can worship if you want I'm going to make you leave your home, leave your promised land, leave your father's, uh, you know, your grandfather, great-grandfather's dwelling place. I'm going to make you go to this, this stinking Gentile land of Babylon. 
where there's false gods all over the place. I'm going to give you a taste of your own medicine. I'm going to take your evil and make you smoke the whole pack, as the father would say back in the day when he caught his son smoking, right? That's the same idea. You want to do evil? Here's all the evil you can handle till you throw up. Verse 14 again. God has watched upon the evil and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works. He is right to do the spanking that we got. Why? Because we did not obey his voice. So it's all about perspective. Is it good that God did this or is it evil that God did this? Well, if I'm the one getting the spanking, it's, it's a bad thing. Later on, I'll realize with perspective, it was a good thing. But at the moment, it just hurts. So how do you interpret it? Verse 15. Verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, who has brought forth your people out of the land of Egypt. He's going way back. That's Exodus. With a mighty hand. And have gotten the great renown. As at this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. So, we had the repentance. The, I'm sorry. We had the confessing. The, I deserve this. Now we come to the, please forgive me part. Now, I want you to, this is the, this is the thing to take away from this prayer. It's, this part of it is almost over. And then we're going to get God's response here in a second. But here's your big takeaway from this prayer. You can learn from this prayer how to pray to God. Because Daniel does not just say, okay, uh, we shouldn't have done that. Please forgive us because we don't like it in Babylon anymore. He doesn't make it just about himself or just about his people. Yes, they shouldn't like it. That's the whole point of the punishment. But God needs more than just, you know, you don't like it. God needs more than just saying, I don't want a spanking because they hurt. I don't want a spanking because it hurts you. I don't want a spanking because I'm thinking about you and what you have to go through when I do wrong. That's the other side of it. That's when you have those attitudes. That's when true contrition and true repentance comes. So listen to that in what Daniel says, how he makes it not just about himself and Judah, but about God. Verse 15 again. Now, God, you brought the people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and you made yourself very famous even to this day. We have sinned and we have done wickedly. In other words, we want out of Babylon, and he directly equates getting out of Babylon with getting out of Egypt. Now, do you see how he does that? When you pull the old Israelites out of Egypt, everybody knew of your power. You made yourself famous across the whole region. The God of Israel, this tiny little nation that didn't even have a homeland at the time, you saved them and you made yourself and you showed yourself greater than Pharaoh and all of his gods. So that's amazing, God. Look what you accomplished. Moses uses that himself. When God says to Moses, should I just kill all these people and start over with a new nation? And Moses says, now God, if you do that, all the other nations will make fun of you. That's basically his point. If you do that, God, then Pharaoh wins. Because Pharaoh said, let God deal with this people. I'm sick of dealing with them anyway. So you'll be proving Pharaoh right. What is Moses doing there? He is rationalizing. He is reasoning with. He is arguing. He is pleading a case before a judge. Yes, God can do whatever God wants to do. Yes, God has. Yes, God knows the future. He knows everything you're already thinking. And yet, that same God who has all those qualifications asks you to pray to him. To talk to him and to tell you what you want and what you need. Not just what you need, but what you want. And let him make the judge, judgment about the difference between the two. But if we, if we regard God as Santa Claus, if we just treat God as the person at the other end of the drive through line at McDonald's, and we're just making an order, placing an order. All right, God, I want uh, three blessings and a side of, of you know, happiness. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. 
You have to approach God and you have to say, here's the situation that I'm in. Here's what I need from you. Because I can't do this without you. So God, please provide this for me. Now let me tell you why this is good for me. And let me tell you why this is good for you. You approach God, not like Santa Claus, placing an order. You approach God like a judge. And you plead your case before him. The good thing about this judge is, though, this judge is your dad. This judge is your father. So you get to approach him and not just approach him with meekness and fear, but with boldness, Hebrews 4, 15. You approach the throne of God with boldness and the confidence of a son approaching your father. And you say, Father, I need this. And here's why I need this. Make your case. If it is something as seemingly trivial as a lost pair of socks or a lost dog or a lost loved one or something that, that you might think is most important and someone else might not think anything about or something that might be hugely important for you or for many people in general. Don't just say, God, give me this. Because who are you to presumptuously demand of God? You don't say, give me this. You say, God, I think I need this. What do you think? Because here's what I would do with it if I had it. Here's how I would bless you and magnify your name if this problem went away or if this need was fulfilled. That doesn't mean God's still going to give it to you because Paul asked three times, and I assume he knew how to pray. He asked three times to remove the thorn in the flesh, and God said, no, what you've got is good enough. What I've given you is good enough. But you'll never, you'll never get a yes from God if you just place an order like he's the you know, worker at McDonald's. Do as Daniel does. Go to God and say, you can get great renown if you pull the people out of... Look how mighty Babylon is. If or Persia, now, if you free us from Persia, how great and how huge would your name be spread across the empire? He's just making a case to a judge. That's the way to pray. And by the way, when you do that, it will focus your prayers and it will put you in the right state of mind for what you can do to, you know... Um, to live righteously and faithfully whenever that prayer is answered. Now, verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I beseech you, let your anger and your fury be turned away from the city Jerusalem, the holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people are become a reproach unto all that are about us. So you, when you freed Egypt, you made yourself famous all over the place. Us, Jerusalem, uh, Judea, the people, however you want to you know, summarize that group, we made our name infamous. We made our reputation terrible around everyone. We made ourselves a reproach to all that are around us. You have the power to make yourself, not us, to make yourself famous and great and seen as such to all that are around us. You can do that through your righteousness that we are begging for. We beseech you in your righteousness, to let your anger and your fury be turned away from Jerusalem, which at this point has already been destroyed, but the possibility is there and will be fulfilled to be rebuilt in the temple with it. So Jerusalem, the holy mountain, the people, they're all lumped together. Our sins, our iniquities, look what we've done. Only you can clean this mess up. And all we can do is just say we're sorry. Verse 17. Now therefore, O our God, Hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications and cause your face to shine upon the sanctuary that is desolate. Babylon's destroyed the temple for the Lord's sake. <coughs> last, um, the last three verses that we've looked at, they all kind of carry the same basic idea, which is Daniel saying to God, please hear this prayer, receive this prayer favorably. Please see the contrition in our hearts. Please see the needs of the moment. Please see the possibility to 
for you to be glorified. That, that theme is repeated throughout these last several verses. And here he says, hear our prayer. Now, God hears everything. He, he can't not hear everything. His, his mind is infinite. The power of his hearing is infinite. But in the sense of acknowledgement, in the sense of responding to, that's where God um, makes a choice to hear. He wants God, the second thing he says, face to shine, which is a classical expression that means bestow upon us blessings. It, it dates back to a child looking up at their father with a smiling face, and that's how the child knew, I'm about to get something good here. I'm not about to get a rebuke, I'm about to get something kind. I see a smiling face. So I want to look up at God and see a smiling face back at me, not a scowl. Verse 18, O God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you for our righteousness, for, uh, but for your great mercies. So he asked him in the previous verse. He repeats it here. Turn your ear to us. He can hear them. We're speaking to you, and it's not out of obligation. It's not out of self-preservation. It's out of love for you and sorrow for ourselves. So acknowledge us with your ears. The second thing he says is, behold our desolations. God can see everything. He can't not see everything. He is infinite. So he, he is always seeing out to us that we deserved and see that we deserved it. But he doesn't stop there. He turns it to see that the city that is called by your name is desolate. In other words, Jerusalem is not named after God. It means the city that is under your ownership, name, authority. The city that is, uh, that is controlled by you. And look what has become of it. Well, that was by God's design. But he's saying to God, look, look, at, look, do you want to leave it like this? Let's rebuild. Let's make it better again. We don't present our supplications before you for our righteousness. This is not a self-righteous prayer. This is not an I'm sorry, but if you hadn't have, then I wouldn't have. No, it's for your mercies. And for your power, we pray to you. Verse 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for your own sake. O my God, for the city and the people are called by your name. I want to get your translation if it's different than mine. Mine says, O Lord, hear and forgive. Mine says, O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not. What does your Bible say? Pay attention and act. All right. But right after that, I have a defer not. What do you have? Delay not. Huh? Oh, delay not. Yeah, delay not. Right. Uh, defer kind of might sound like I'll do something else instead. It might be translated or might be interpreted that way. But yeah, that's the better translation. Um, don't delay any longer. We're coming up on the end of that 70-year promise. Better late than ever. We are offering our apology to you. Don't delay to forgive us and to fulfill that promise that we would go home again. Not just for our sake. But for your sake, God, for your city and your people that are called by your name, Jerusalem, not literally named after God, Israel, named after God. So we are named for you, and here we are in desolation. The city is yours, and there it is lying in ruins. That's, that's your earthly footprint. And look at the condition is in, the terrible condition. So for your sake, not just ours, save us. This is the classic, the oldest in the book argument don't do it for me, do it for yourself. And that's Daniel's employing it because it works. It's timeless. If you, can, if you can ask someone for something and you can make an argument that convinces them that helping you actually helps them, you'll get a yes every time. And that's Daniel's argument. Verse 20. But by the way, I'll just say, I'll say it one more time. God already knows all these things. 
God wants to hear these things. Not because God is vain, but because God wants to know that we believe these things. That we are not self-centered. That we are thinking about God and His magnificence. Because that's God deserves that. He's allowed to think that. None of us are. Verse 20. So, that's the end of the prayer. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of God, verse 21, while I was speaking in prayer, even the man, Gabriel, even the angel who looked like a man, let's put it that way. We've already defined him as an angel in the previous text. Whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning. Whom I had seen in the vision, does your Bible say at the beginning? In the first, I had seen him previously would be the most modern way of putting it, because he saw him in the 10, 11, and 12 chapter um, and talked about him and so forth. Uh, and chapter 8 too, I think. Um, so, that uh, when I saw the vision back then, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. We'll come down in a second. Mine says Gabriel was caused to fly swiftly. Is that what yours says? Something like that? So who caused Gabriel to fly swiftly? Who tells an angel what to do? Huh? Say it, you know it. Yeah, the Father, right? He sends his angels. That's why they're called angels. One sent on a mission. So um, Daniel says, while I was in the middle of my prayer, before he had even gotten to the, we're sorry, at the end of the prayer, please forgive us, let's put all this behind this part. Before that, he was just in the middle of the prayer. At that point, God says, Gabriel, go and give him the answer. God, again, knows everything you're going to say before you say it. But he waits until you say it before you see the response. It's just because he already knows it. He knows your heart, knows what your heart will be. Sometimes he's already putting wheels in motion before you ever finish your sentence. And you don't even see that until you have finished your sentence. So Gabriel comes before Daniel, verse 22. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I am now come forth to give you skill and understanding. Something very similar that he said to him back when he had a, a vision that he needed interpreting. And he didn't understand the vision. So God sent Gabriel to explain the vision. Well, the difference here, though, is there is no vision. He hasn't said anything that needs interpretation, except he has. If you remember, it was last week, is the beginning of this chapter. This whole thing started because Daniel was reading Jeremiah the prophet. And he was reading Jeremiah's prophecy, promise from God, that after 70 years are accomplished, the people would get out of captivity. And that is what sparked in Daniel this great sorrow and need to repent on behalf of the whole people. So Gabriel is coming to shed light on that and to clarify that, which is what caused this whole thing in the first place. So look at verse 23. At the beginning, this is Gabriel speaking. At the beginning of your supplications, the commandment came forth. So he just starts to pray and God says, go help him. And here I am. I am come to show you because you are greatly beloved. So understand the matter and consider the vision. What vision? The vision that he read from um, from. Jeremiah, and of course, which he's also heard about in previous prophecies. Verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon your people and upon the holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. I want to hear your translation. Let's start. Frank, give me verse 24. Whole verse. Yeah, the whole verse. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. All right. 
Based on what he said, does that sound like what everybody's Bible says? Mm -hmm. All right, good. So everybody's Bible says 70 weeks, right? So in Jeremiah, we had 70 years. Here we have 70 weeks. Is this the same period of time, just phrased differently? Is this a different period of time? I have, I have looked at a lot of writings uh, for, about, about uh, the book of Daniel. I mean, going back to even like rabbi writings that were translated. I don't, I don't speak Hebrew. It's, it's all Greek to me. Um, so going back even to then when people were studying. And there's like, if you study the book of Daniel, okay, you got 12 chapters. All right. But it's more like in terms of the actual material that commentaries will give it, it's more like this. Chapters 1 through like 9 and there's this. So like the, the, the easy stuff, like lion's den, fiery furnace, that kind of stuff, very little attention given to it, unfortunately, because there's a lot of good stuff there. But then once you get into the prophecies, the prophecies, the prophecies, and like the 70 weeks alone is like this much of a book that's this thick. It's just, it's stupid how much attention is paid to this. And I know, I'll say this right now, there is an explanation for what the 70 weeks is. At the end of this chapter, there's a 62 weeks. There is an explanation. I know there's an explanation because it came from the mind of God. And so if he thought up the number, he has the meaning of the number in mind. Now, I say all that to say this. I'm sorry you've been in this class for 16, 17 weeks. I don't know what the 70 weeks is, per se. Okay? So, I hate to disappoint you if you were expecting that. I don't have an answer. I have some theories, and I have some thoughts, and I have some, you know, kind of unconnected ideas that are floating around in my headspace that I haven't quite worked out yet. But I don't have the answer. What I have is this. It doesn't matter. It's very convenient for me to say but it doesn't matter, because what, I, what, we'll, what we'll be told, and I'll, I'll set it up right now, is this. The 70 weeks, I don't know what, why 70 weeks is called that, but I know what it means. The 70 weeks is this. Um, Judah sins, Judah goes into exile, Judah gets out of exile and rebuilds the temple. The Messiah comes, and what we'll get later is um, the Messiah is crucified, okay? So here's the coming of the Messiah, you know, the star, and here's the crucifixion of the Messiah. Here's the temple, you know, we'll make that a big building. All right, so... You go into captivity, you get out of captivity, you build the temple, then the Messiah comes, the Messiah is killed. You're going to get all of that in the next couple of verses. This period right here is 70 weeks. This period right here, 62 weeks. Now, I don't know why God, in his infinite wisdom, and I say that sincerely, chose this as his number to represent this time period. But I know that's the time period based on what we'll read. And I know this is the time period. So I don't know why it's this. And again, hundreds of pages of book are written about why it's this, and it doesn't matter. Because I, we are living here. This is me. We're over here. So I may not know why it's chosen as this, but it's already been fulfilled. So I'm not staying up at night sweating over it. You know what I mean? But people do. They will stay up all night sweating over it because they don't realize that it means this. They try to make it apply to something in the present day. They get all mixed up. Or they intentionally conflate it to try to convince people to give them money so they can buy a jet. Either way. The point is, though, it, this represents a period of time between the rebuilding of the temple and the coming of the Messiah. Look at the verse 24 again. Seventy weeks are determined, a period of time of seventy weeks, upon the people and upon the holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of the sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. Now, what is that? What are their sins? What is their reconciliation that's needed? What is the iniquity they've done? This chapter has already told you, you just heard a whole prayer about their sins and their iniquities. And their wanting and need for reconciliation. You just heard a whole chapter of Daniel saying, God, please forgive us of the sins of our past. 
the sins that put us into exile, sin, all these things that we've done that's got us into this trouble, bring it to an end. So what is the end of it? It is getting out of exile and the establishment of the temple leading to the coming of the Messiah. That's already been defined for us in this chapter. You don't have to make up some other thing of what it could mean and inject and stick it in there and shove it in there. The chapter context has already told you. The sin and the iniquity of the people has already been defined. It's the sin of Judah that Daniel's been praying about. And so God is saying, there's a period of 70 weeks until all that is accomplished and finished. Until that, that period of time. Not, not the 70 years, which is the time period in which they will be in exile, and then they get out of exile to build the temple. Not that period, which that's the one out of a hundred times when a number is given in, in a prophetic writing that's literal, because it will be 70 years, 586 to 516 or whatever, um, when the temple's rebuilt. Not that, but this period between the temple and the coming of the Messiah, because keep reading. The end of it all is not just the temple, but it is the bringing in of everlasting righteousness, sealing up a vision of prophecy, and the anointing of the most holy. End of verse 24. What does your, again, your Bible say at the end of verse 24? Most holy place. Well, it ought not say place. place. It ought not. Keep going. Keep going. Oh, come on. Never mind. Don't keep going. We have to hurry because I have to finish this chapter. Verse 25. We'll get to it as we go through the text. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in trouble sometimes. You have, now, it, I mean, this, well, I guess I should ask, what does your translation say in verse 25? Mine says Messiah the Prince. The Anointed One. The Messiah who is coming. The period to the coming of the Messiah is what we're defining here. Now, it is being described for us in different numerical terms, but I don't know why those numerical terms are different and what the meaning behind them is, but I'm being told what they represent. And that's more important than why God chose the numbers. Whether it's seven weeks and this and that and adding it all up to get to some other number. It doesn't matter. I know what it means. And it means up to the coming of the anointed one, the Messiah. That's what's more relevant. That's what's more important. Oh, I'm missing. I'm skipping so much good stuff. It's in the book. Just read the book. All right. I have four of them left, by the way. Verse 26. And after three score and two weeks shall the Messiah be cut off. How much is three score and two? There's your 62. So we just ended with the coming of the Messiah, and after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. But not by him, not for himself. In other words, the Messiah will be killed, but not because he's a bad guy. He'll be killed because he's innocent. Doesn't that sound the story of Jesus? That's who we're talking about here. The Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince shall come and shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with the flood, and the end of the war, desolations are determined. You have Daniel prophesying everything that is coming here, and including even up until the period shortly thereafter. After the Messiah is killed, Jerusalem will be destroyed again. Which, I mean, Jesus references Daniel in Matthew 24 when he's talking about the signs you can look for to know when the city is going to be destroyed. And the chapter begins with him saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have sheltered you like a mother hen does her chicks, but you wouldn't have me. And now, to paraphrase, there's not going to be brick upon brick left. They're all going to be destroyed. The whole city's going to be destroyed. Jesus is prophesying. And the disciples come to him later and they say, can you give us some signs like Daniel of old is what they mean to, to tell us when these, the Jerusalem will be destroyed. 
And Jesus doesn't say, uh, it'll be about 40 years, six months, and three days. He doesn't do that. He says, quoting from Daniel, when you see the abomination of desolation, you'll know to, it's time to get out. When you see Gentiles coming into Jerusalem, they're not coming in to occupy, they're coming in to destroy. And sure enough, in AD 70, General Titus, the future Caesar, marches into Jerusalem and lays waste to the city, completely obliterates it, and destroys the temple once again. The whole of Daniel is written to this people who are in exile, and who are desperate to get out of exile and get their temple back, to get everything back to normal, just make everything back how it was. And this last prophecy of Daniel is God saying, there are some things that are going to happen, but you're not going to get your temple back. Oh, you can rebuild a building, and you can make it even more spectacular, and you can make it big and grandiose, but it's just going to be destroyed again. It doesn't matter. There is a greater spiritual temple there is a greater spiritual kingdom. There is a Messiah who is coming to save you from your sins. Daniel is offering a prayer to God saying, God, please forgive us of our sins and let us go home again and make everything back to normal. And God says, I will forgive you of your sins, period. But you will not be normal again. Your home will not be Jerusalem anymore. I mean, you can live there if you want. But your home is going to be a spiritual place. Your king is going to be a spiritual king. Your, your temple is a spiritual temple. Everything is, everything is going to change. The only thing that's not going to change is our relationship, and even that will be better. So I think people, they get so caught in the weeds of 70 years or 70 weeks or 62 weeks or whatever it is, and they try to add up and number and multiply, and they miss it. They miss the point. We're almost done. Look at verse 27. He shall confirm the covenant for, many with, uh, for one week, in the midst of the week, he shall cause a sacrifice and the oblation to cease. In the overspreading of abominations, he shall make desolate. That's what Jesus references in Matthew 24. Even to the consummation, but that is determined to be poured out unto the desolate. In other words, wonky King James phraseology, you're going to have another Antiochus come. Another bad guy is going to come, and he's going to make sacrilege on the, the holy temple again. And when that happens, it's just it's the repeat of what happened before. The only difference is... Now you're on this side of it, and the Messiah has come. And it's not going to matter that they destroy the temple. That's the distinction. So Jesus takes what Daniel said when he originally was talking about Antiochus. He interprets from the prophecy of Daniel 9, and he says, that's actually about Titus, who is coming to destroy Jerusalem again. But don't worry about it, because I'm here. And they're about to kill me, and I'm going to rise, and I'm going to make everything better all over again. I had a lot more to say about the 70 thing, but... That's all I got. You can leave now.